0: Running off the cuff here. Uh, I know I have several things to announce. I'm just looking at my calendar where I have nothing written. Um, What is today? The first. So, uh, the 15th. No. I have no idea. I lost all my announcements. So, anyways. Uh, the twenty second, I'll just mention this. the twenty second um, will be uh, the last uh, Sunday that the that Daniel and Kelsey uh, and Louisa Gallatin will be with us. Uh, that is also the same Sunday that Ina York will be joining us for a service here, and she'll share an update with us, so looking forward to that. Uh, but uh, mainly following the service, we're going to have a uh, sort of like a, a send-off, having some lunch downstairs in the fellowship hall. As a, sort of a way to say goodbye uh to the Gallantons as they head out uh to um their next destination, which is to train for the um with the i m b as they prepare to go to uh, uh, to become missionaries and sharing the gospel of jesus christ so uh they'll actually be here um i don 't see them yet i I hope they're coming <laughs> but uh, they should be here uh, this morning, and they're going to share a little bit with us uh, later during the service, during the time of pastoral prayer, giving us a quick update. Um, let us know uh, if you have not had a chance to know them well or meet them. You'll have a chance to know a little bit about them. I say share about themselves and sort of their call upon uh, call upon their life uh, to go to missions and know how to pray for them. And we'll spend uh, a little bit of time praying for them during the service uh, later. So. Uh, with all that being said, uh, let us uh, go before the Lord this morning, let us worship Him, let us give Him our hearts and our minds, um, and uh, perhaps you are coming here this morning uh, distracted, maybe there's things on your mind, things that are sort of pressing upon your life right now that you just can't shake, uh, but my prayer and hope is that you may be able to uh, give your heart and mind to the Lord Jesus Christ um, and uh, He is not uh, distracted uh, by anything. He is not distracted from His glorious work. We are a part of His glorious work, which is to feed us with His Word, uh, to nourish us, to encourage us in the faith, so that we may go about the rest of our week uh, living unto His glory and for His glorious purposes, serving one another in the ways that we can and, uh, and honoring Him uh, with all the resources that He has given uh, at our disposal. And so let us begin our week by giving ourselves to Him in the worship and glory and honor for the great work that He has done for us, namely in saving us from our sins. So let us worship Him this morning. Mm. Yes.
1: Um, Church, let's stand. Let's worship this morning. The Word of God says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours yours is the kingdom O lord and you are exalted as head above all both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all in your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all and now we thank you our god and praise your glorious name let's do just that this morning amen
2: crown him with many crowns crown him with many crowns On Him, the Lord of Love. On Him, the Lord of Love. Behold His hands and side, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can. stay The throne on Christ the solid rock I sin, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand on Christ. On Christ the solid rock I sin, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground sem quem ser The name of all things you stand, you stand alone, I stand amazed, Jesus.
1: Time this morning may you be glorified in the rest, in the rest of our time, Lord, as we, as we come into your word, as we come into prayer. This is all worship unto you, Father. May you receive our worship this morning, God, as a church as a body. We're here to magnify your name, Lord. Father, you are worthy of our praise. Thank you, Father, for your word. May you speak to us, Lord. May you bring conviction, if needed, encouragement. May we be edified, God, this morning. Father, thank you for our church. Thank you, Lord, for this body of believers, Lord. where We look forward to joining each other in fellowship every Sunday morning. Thank you, Father, for the love and the care that you have placed in us towards each other. And more importantly, Father, the foundation that you have placed in all of us, which is in Christ, our Lord and Savior, Father. May you continue, Lord, to pour your grace and mercy over your church. I pray, God, you may lead us now into your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. At this time we'll have our children dismissed to their classrooms.
0: Let me read this, uh, this passage to you in Romans fifteen. Uh just contains within it such a such a strong uh, missionary ambition and zeal. It says Romans fifteen a uh, verse verse beginning at verse eighteen. The Apostle Paul, speaking of his own missionary ministry, says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all around Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not what Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Uh, many of you uh, know uh, the Garlingtons and know a little bit about their story and a little bit about where the Lord has called them to next, in a particular call. Uh, we'll actually have a much more um, sort of a formal send-off and be able to just pray with you both, uh, well, well, the three of you, as we uh, send you out. Um, but let me uh, just say a quick prayer uh, for them uh, in these for these next couple of weeks, uh, and it is uh, uh, it's it's bittersweet, um, really is. It's a, it's a joy to know that you are following uh, the Lord's call. And that is uh, something to rejoice over, but bitter in the sense that we'll we'll certainly miss you guys. It's easier not to think about it now. We'll think about it later. (laughs) But um, let me say a quick prayer, and then we'll um, we'll turn to the Word. Father, three billion people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So many people who. Not even have access to the gospel, Lord, there is such a desperate need for more laborers to go out into the field. You say that the harvest is plentiful, or which means that there is a lot of fruit to reap in the world, but what is just simply needed is more laborers to go and reap the fields. Lord, and we're so thankful for the Garlington's. God, thank you for this call that you have placed in their lives, Lord, to be these laborers that will go into this harvest of an unfamiliar place, an unfamiliar culture, unfamiliar surroundings, all to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, be able to reap a great harvest, Lord, and we we pray for that. Lord, in these uh, coming weeks, Father, would you continue to prepare their hearts and minds. Father, may you continue to show them sweet things in your scriptures so that at any moment where they become incredibly saddened or incredibly anxious, Lord, that that they might be sustained by the things that they are learning in your scriptures and by the precious promises that you have written for them. Lord, direct them in these coming weeks to those precious scriptures that will anchor them and that will... Steady their steps. Father, we pray that you would continue to prepare the way before them, that you would direct their paths, and Father, we pray that you might help us, Lord, to continue to encourage them, to strengthen them, to exhort them. Lord, help us. Help us to be faithful unto them and to love them, Lord, as best we can in the short time that we have with them. So Father, we we look forward to all that you're going to do. And give them, Lord, and give us an increasing desire to see lost people saved. Whether it's in a different country or culture or whether it's in our own backyard, Lord, give us a growing hunger to see your salvation and many unbelievers coming to saving faith in Christ Jesus. And give all of us the boldness to proclaim your precious gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Please turn with me to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 5, verses 33 to 42. beginning in verse 33. When they, there's the religious council, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, And let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the savior of the world. It is in your name that we gather, it is in your name that we serve one another, it is in your name that we teach, and it is in your name that we preach. So we look to you this morning, knowing and believing that you hear us, we pray, Father, that you might help us to receive your word. With all humility and with all gladness, Lord, help me to preach your word accurately, humbly, and faithfully, and fulfill your glorious purposes for us as we give attention to your word today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The website Desiring God recently Recent lesson, I think maybe a couple months ago, came out with an article that actually uh, deals with, uh, with the topic of missions and is actually quite relevant with today's sermon. And in this article, it says In March of 1557, a group of Protestant French tradesmen landed on an island off the coast of Brazil, coming to be a part of a new French colony that needed more people, especially skilled workers. Along with this company were two Protestant ministers, Pierre Richier and Guillaume Chartier, who had been invited to teach the other Europeans and to evangelize the native people. This landing marked the first Protestant missionary enterprise to the New World. The article goes on and then it says how the Catholic governor of the colony exiled these Protestant. Preachers to the mainland and then eventually forced them to return to France. And over the years afterwards, some have thought that the sending, that why did this fail? Or was this a failure? Perhaps the sending church, that is the church that sent these two missionaries or these two preachers of the gospel, perhaps focused too much on church rebuilding, that is, focused too much internally and not focused too much or not focused enough on outward ministry. Perhaps there was an overemphasis on the life of this ascending church on God's sovereignty. In other words, perhaps they devoted themselves to, on too much theology. Or they perhaps should have concerned themselves much more with other things. And some people make this particular case because of the particular church that these two preachers came from, and that was the church in Geneva, pastored by none other than the French reformer and theologian, John Calvin. Was this a failed attempt? Perhaps this should have never been an endeavor in the first place. Some might judge this as God's closing of a door that never was open to begin with. Should anyone judge this as an absolute failure, because it bore little fruit there, and then just as quickly gone from the mission field, exiled? As we consider these questions and what might some perceive as a failed missionary attempt, let's also consider the passage this morning, considering the first church, this growing church. In this passage, I am arguing illumines to us some of the differences between a genuine work of God, a genuine endeavor, a genuine enterprise of God, in contrast to those enterprises or those undertakings that are without a divine unction or divine foundation. First, let's consider the enterprise of the apostles. You might remember the apostles, having been arrested, they're brought before the council, and they're charged to stop teaching the name of Jesus, to which Peter, speaking on behalf of the apostles, says that we must obey God rather than men. We must continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we come to verse 33, that when the religious leaders heard this, they became enraged, so enraged that they wanted to kill all of the apostles. Then the question is that we're sort of wrestling with, considering as we go through this passage and sermon this morning, is, is this a genuine work of God? And so, how can you tell? As we consider the first church, we consider the persecution of the apostles, the teachers and preachers of the first church, could we say whether or not this is a genuine work of the Lord? And some might point to the miraculous signs. The apostles were performing signs and wonders. Miracles were happening with regularity in the life of the first church. And some might say, well, the church, we don't see such regularity of signs in the life of the church. So could it be perhaps that God or that Christ has departed from His church? And I don't think that's the case. I don't think personally, some might differ, I personally do not believe that this New Testament makes the case that we should expect such miraculous signs and wonders with regularity in the life of the church. I'm what some might call sort of a, a careful cessationist in the sense that I don't expect, I don't see in the scriptures that we should expect such signs and wonders with such regularity in the life of the church. It is not to say that God does not perform such signs and wonders in the life of the church. It is not to say that God does not perform such things in other places, in other parts of the world, in other churches. But I'm convinced that we should not expect these things to happen on a regular basis. Therefore, I do not think that just because we do not see such works on a regular basis that it is a sure sign that Christ has departed from his church. Some might point to Acts 2.42, where it says there that they, the first church, the disciples, the first believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, I think, in some sense, we see here a prescription of what the church ought to be like. I don't think this is a necessarily an evidence of a genuine work of the Lord. I think this is rather a fruit of Christ's abiding presence in the life of the church. Wherever Christ is, there His people will devote themselves to these things. Some might look further to Acts 2:47 it says there that the people of God were having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. More and more people were coming into the church. The church was growing. We have here sort of a rapidly growing church, perhaps the first, a mega church, the first of its kind. And some might say, well, we can look at the rapid growth and number of the church and we can say, certainly this is a sure sign of the evidence of the work of God, but Rapid growth in numbers is not always a sure sign that this is a genuine work of the Lord. We will see very soon two individuals, Theodos and Judas, who amassed to themselves a great number of people, many followers. But it was not a sure sign that this was a genuine work of the Lord. We can point to many churches in the country we can point to the church such as the church of, whatever it's called, Joel Osteen's church. It's a stadium filled every single week with people coming to the service. Is that a sure sign of a genuine work of the Lord? Now when you consider the kind of gospel that is preached Sunday in, Sunday out by somebody who perhaps may be unconverted based on their understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so rapid growth and numbers, or just because a church is a mega church, is not a sure sign that this is a genuine work of the Lord. And the reason why this matters is because if we say that the Lord is with us, then we want to pursue these evidences. We want to see these evidences in the life of our own church. Or if the Lord has called us elsewhere, for whatever reason, we want to be able to see whether or not these are, this is a genuine work of the Lord. What are the evidences? If we're going to partner or support another church or our, our ministry or a parachurch ministry, what are some of the evidences that will show us whether or not the Lord is with this? And if there is a genuine work of the Lord, Right? If God is about a glorious task, would we not want to be a part of it? Would we not want to join in that glorious endeavor? If God is doing something, do we not want to be a part of it? Be a part of what God is doing. Again, the question is the enterprise or the undertaking of the apostles of divine origin? Does it have divine backing? So let us proceed to consider some of the evidences of a genuine undertaking of God. Evidence number one, its endurance. Verse 33, when the religious teachers heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Gamaliel was a Pharisee of Pharisees, held in honor at his time by all the people. The religious council, made up of two different groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, one point, significant point of distinction between the two groups is that the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, the Sadducees did not. The Sadducees wanted to go ahead and silence the voices of the apostles. But even though the number of Sadducees was much greater than the Pharisees, the Pharisees had the heart of the people. More people followed the Pharisees than the Sadducees. And so the Sadducees were not going to proceed with their plans without the Pharisees' approval because they had the people's attention more so than the Sadducees. And then you have the Pharisee of Pharisees, Gamaliel, a teacher of the Pharisees, someone held in esteem by all the people, so much so that, in fact, that after he had passed away, someone had written, when Rabbi Gamaliel died, the glory of the Torah ceased, and purity and separateness died. The Apostle Paul, to understand how learned the Apostle Paul was, he was actually under the tutelage of, of Gamaliel. You can understand, <clears throat> excuse me, the breadth of knowledge and understanding that the Apostle Paul had. <clears throat> so Gamaliel speaks. and He says to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. His voice was kind of like a cool wind to still the flame of anger in the Sadducees, the brakes to the powering and angering locomotive. And he proceeds to give them a couple of stories and one pointed lesson. Verse 36, For before these days Judas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And And his lesson is that in all of these movements, they didn't endure. They didn't last very long. At some point, they all died. They withered away. They cease to exist. When its leader goes away or dies, the whole movement goes with it. You remove the vine from its root and the whole thing dies out. Theudas, one of the individuals named in Gamaliel's story, we don't know much about him, what we do know is simply what comes from the passage, from what Gamaliel says, that he was somebody who claimed to be somebody. And he had a following. In fact, 400. It says a number of men. So 400 men. So probably, so probably most likely not including any women and children that were part of this movement. This man had a large Following. But then we see, as Gamaliel says, that afterwards, after he was gone, the whole movement just died. Everybody scattered, nobody continued to follow, showing that the entire thing was hanging on a single individual. When a movement hangs on one individual, you remove the person, and the whole thing goes with it. One modern-day example of this is what happened with Mars Hill Church a church that was massive, a church that planted other churches. And I'm not saying that people were never saved. In Mars Hill Church, I believe many people were saved. And I think it's in spite of what was going on in secret. When things came out, when shady things came out on the part of its pastor, Mark Driscoll, and he stepped down, what happened? The whole thing crumbled and Mars Hill Church ceased to exist along with its other plants. Showing that it was never a genuine undertaking of God. When we consider the Genevan missionaries coming from John Calvin's church, and we might consider their work going to Brazil and then immediately cast out of Brazil, one might be led to conclude that this might have not been an enduring or a genuine work of the Lord, but their work is tied to a greater work, to a more foundational work, and that is the work of the church. Church. The church is the one who sent out the missionaries. Hebrews 10.32 says, recall, recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison." And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There's an exhortation in the passage as the author exhorts his readers. that they have endured a hard struggle with suffering. They continue to press on. They continue to move ahead. And there's a, there's a word there on how to, endu- how to endure well, which is a subject for another, another sermon. But the point is, is that the passage points us to Christians who are continuing to endure hard struggles, enduring suffering on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.4, this is a wonderful passage. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering." Apostle Paul says, concerning this particular church that he's running to that he and others boast about the church in Thessalonica, that they are enduring their persecutions and their steadfastness and in their faith. Like this is, in other words, he's highlighting them. Like your example is something worthy of imitation, that you are continuing with faith and steadfastness, enduring the sufferings on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We consider the church in Geneva and the kind of persecution, and it is kind of persecution, to be run out of the country that you have gone to go and proclaim the gospel to is a kind of persecution. But their work is tied to a much larger work and that is the the work of the church who sent them out in the first place. The Genevan church is the center and its missionary endeavors is the spoke to the center. So, even though that one spoke did not last very long, it is still, it was always anchored to the much larger and much more foundational and important work of the church. And so, The first evidence is endurance. A genuine enterprise or a genuine undertaking of God is that it continues to endure. Despite persecution, despite suffering, it will continue to live and thrive, very much like a tree, suffering the harshness and the bitterness of winter. It doesn't appear to be alive because there's no green leaves on it. They've all fallen off. There's no... Fruit that is being born in the tree, but when spring rolls around, then the leaves begin to sprout and it begins to bear fruit. It has survived the harsh and fierce winter and made it through to the end, to the season of spring and summer. So is every enterprise and project that the Lord is backing. There may be seasons where it appears that it is not bearing any fruit, but it continues to endure. It continues to move on. It continues to press into the kingdom until the Lord sees fit to bring about a season where it does bear fruit. So evidence number one, endurance. Evidence number two, It's following. Again, for before those days, Gamaliel says, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. he, too, perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So both of these men had their following. However, the word, the Greek word for following or followed here is, is, is different than the word for follow that we read in the, New Te- in the Gospels. Particularly when Jesus tells people to come and follow him. It's a very different word used there. And this is helpful to understand because we might compare the following of Judas and Judas with that of Jesus, and so we might wonder well, what is the difference here? These men had their following, Jesus had his following. Does it make then the work of Jesus or the following of Jesus the same as Judas, the Galilean, and Theodos? But the word for follow here points away persuasiveness. There's an appeal to these men. Perhaps they were pretty flamboyant. Perhaps they were pretty charismatic. Perhaps they were very eloquent in their speech. And in that sense, they were able to magnetize a great amount of people to follow them. And one of them, in Judas the Galilean, says that he drew away some of the people. The door drew away there points to a kind of deception or a leading down a wrong path. Judas the Galilean, we do know a little bit more about Judas the Galilean. During the time of the census, this is pointing to a time when Jerusalem or Israel became a part of the Roman province, and then Rome decided to conduct a census to try to determine how much tribute Israel is to pay to Rome. Judas the Galilean led a nationalist and religious revolt against Rome, which was snuffed out by the Romans. And then his following died with them, although some would say that it lived on because the spirit of his movement later on would become known as the Zealots. And one of the disciples of Jesus, some of you might know, was Simon the Zealot. But these men had their following because there was a particular kind of persuasiveness. There was an appeal, there was a draw about them. But when Jesus uses the word follow, when Jesus calls people to come and follow Him, it is referring to discipleship. It is, come and learn from me. Come under my tutelage. Come not only learn from me, but learn to be like me. To follow Jesus is to walk like Jesus, is to talk like Jesus. Even to think like Jesus is to show a resemblance to Jesus. That following is very different than the kind of following of Theudas and Judas the Galilean. And so what's the lesson here? When the center is removed, the followers stop following. In a genuine undertaking of God, the followers of Christ continue to follow. They continue to follow. Jesus Christ died for the sins of his people, was crucified to a cross, buried in a tomb, yet he rose again from the dead three days later, and yet afterwards he did ascend on high to the right hand of God. But even after he physically left his people, his people continued to follow him. And why is that? Because Jesus never really left because Jesus continues to remain with His church. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, The Great Commission, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Then here it is, And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus, even though He ascended on high, Still remains with his church. His presence remains with each and every single individual believer, but it also remains in the life of his church. So the reason why the followers of Jesus continue to follow Jesus is because Jesus never really left. First Peter one eight though you have not seen the Lord, you love the Lord. Though you do not now see Jesus, you believe in Jesus and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our faith, our Christianity, our religion is marked by believing and loving in a Savior that we do not see. It is marked by following a Savior that we do not see. And we follow... And we love and we believe in him because Jesus still is with us even now as we meet. Later on in Acts chapter 5, when the deacon Stephen is stoned, the church scatters. Christians go to different places. But it's not that they stopped following, but rather they continue to follow wherever they go, and they continue. To share the gospel wherever they go. So, evidence number one a genuine work of God endures. Second, its followers continue to follow. Verse 38 Gamaliel then proceeds to give the council a caution. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Gamaliel cautions them. He says, wait for the pattern. Wait and watch for the pattern. Play the long game here. If this undertaking is of man, inevitably is going to fail like the ones that came before them. It's going to die out. It's going to cease to exist. You don't have to lift a finger. Just let him go and we're going to see whether or not this is an undertaking of man. However, if this is a plan of God. As one Bible version says, you may even be found fighting against god literally you will be god fighters and it is it is dangerous to be a god fighter this is not like jacob striving and wrestling with the angel of the lord seeking a blessing and he prevailed no this is very different you can wrestle with god all you want but you are going to lose. This is like Steve from Blues Clues trying to wrestle Hulk Hogan. Right? Steve has no chance. So in the same way you try to oppose God, you're going to lose. Evidence number three. It's dishonor. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then let them go. So they took Gamaliel's advice, but to show how serious they were, they beat the apostles. And beating in the New Testament, often, most often time, is they, they whipped them. They flogged the apostles. So before they let them go, they wanted to show them that what we think you're doing is criminal. So we're going to treat you as criminals. So they beat them, and then they let them go. And then you have this surprising reaction. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. And they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So it seems that the flogging and the charge had the opposite effect. They considered it worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is because, this is a, because it's a trend already trailblazed by Jesus. And this path trailblazed by Jesus is that the path of glory is the path of shame the path of honor is the path of dishonor to be brought high one must be brought low to possess everything one must possess nothing to gain is to lose to become first you must first be last John 13:21 Jesus In his final meeting with his disciples, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel of bread, that is Judas, Satan entered into Judas, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus says a remarkable thing. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus points to His glorification, He's not just simply pointing to His resurrection and His ascension, but He's pointing to the totality of His suffering. He is including the betrayal of Judas. Judas going to betray Jesus as part of His glory. The Religious teachers bringing Jesus into custody as part of His glory. Jesus being accused and condemned as guilty, the crowds crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus being bruised and beaten, Jesus receiving the crown of thorns upon his head, all point to his glorification so that even every flogging that he received was always, always crying out glory, glory, glory. It was glory all the way through from beginning to end. This is the trend set by Jesus that if you are to be honored, you must be willing to walk the path of dishonor. The apostles understood this, and so they are rejoicing. Second Thessalonians one four, passage we read earlier, again it says there, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Two things that this passage points us to as it relates to what we're talking about this morning. Number one is that the passage says that that the Christians enduring suffering is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Later on, in that same chapter, we see that the righteous judgment is God inflicting His wrath and His vengeance upon those who would inflict His people on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that every time Christ's church bears persecution faithfully and steadfastly, it is only showing evidence of the coming wrath and judgment of God upon those who would target the church of Jesus Christ. And the second thing we see in this passage is that enduring affliction and persecution on account of one's faith is a sign that you are considered worthy of the kingdom of heaven. It is only displaying one's worth. This is why the apostles were rejoicing, because they understood that their suffering dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ is showing that they have been considered worthy of the kingdom of heaven. And here we see another evidence that an undertaking is of divine origin, and that is that the endeavor is treated dishonorably and considered as dishonorable in the lies in the eyes of the world. It's not that its followers are looking to be dishonored, but they are willing to be dishonored for the name of Jesus Christ. And this becomes an incredible witness to the world. And I wonder, as it relates to evangelism, could it, could it be that the reason why we don't see, as it says in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven suffering violence, as many people in the world are ferociously pursuing admittance into the kingdom of heaven, is because the disciples of the kingdom of heaven are not willing to, to put themselves in positions to be dishonored for the name of Jesus Christ and be shamed for bearing the name of Christ? Could it be that we might be too attached to our own personal honor and reputation and how we might be perceived in the eyes of the world? And we might be tempted to put the blame on God and say, well, salvation belongs to God alone. Amen. I wholeheartedly believe in that. But what if the reason why we do not see so many coming to Christ is because we do not, is because we allow our personal honor and reputation to silence our evangelism? I refuse to believe that the reason, or the only reason why so many people are coming to salvation in Jesus Christ in this early church is because this was just a, a very new thing. And God was doing new, something new, something that's never been done before, that this is the first church, the first of its kind. And certainly those things are true. But what we see here is that those who teach and preach the gospel were willing to put themselves in positions where they would be dishonored and shamed for bearing the name of Jesus Christ. They believed in what they preached, May God give us a carelessness for our own reputation in the eyes of men and help us to embrace the path of Christ where dishonor for the name of Christ is honor for the cause of Christ. Evidence number four. The last one. How do we know that an undertaking is of God or whether it is of man. and before it's obedience and disobedience. Verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. These early Christians, these apostles, were misfits and troublemakers. Even though they had been being and charged not to speak in the name of Jesus, they did it all the more. Not only did they do it in the temple, but they even went from house to house teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They could not help in doing so. They must obey God rather than men. First Corinthians 9.16, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He pronounces a curse even upon himself if he does not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He cannot help but preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like Isaiah after seeing the vision of God in the heavens that then it becomes a word in his heart, like a burning word that he cannot shut up. Necessity is laid upon him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, It is not that they are looking to disobey authority. The apostles are not anarchists. The early church are not anarchists. It is that there is a necessity laid upon their souls to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they were willing to disobey the higher authorities who told them to shut up. And here we see the last mark of a genuine work of God, and that is that it is marked by a willingness to obey. Its followers are marked by a willingness to obey, but not just any kind of obedience. But this obedience is a dangerous obedience. It's a risky obedience. it's risking one's social status, friends, family, perhaps even livelihood, perhaps even one's life. When the Puritans were looking to reform, greater reform the Church of England in order to have it more consistent with the kind of church the New Testament presents, Charles I of England instead sought to purge all Puritans from the land. So he ran them out of churches. He began to, pur- to persecute Puritans. Many have lost their livelihood, run out of the churches. Many have lost their lives and eventually led to what's become known as the Great Migration that led to the establishment of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And we can tell that their undertaking was a work, a genuine work of the Lord because they were marked by a dangerous obedience. They were willing to put themselves in position where they might be at risk to lose everything for the cause of Christ. There's a man named named Aaron Wren who has popularized this kind of model of evangelicalism, which is called the Three three World Evangelicalism. And he says that there's a positive, neutral, neutral, and negative world. The positive world is... Where, where Christians, even in our society and culture, are actually seen as a positive thing, where being a Christian and identifying yourself as a Christian was actually a, was seen by the world as a good thing, like you gained some, actually some some status, some points in being a Christian. And then that transition to the neutral world, where it didn't gain you anything, nor did you lose anything in identifying as a Christian. But now we live in a negative world, where you have a lot of things to lose by just simply identifying as a Christian. And this is where this evidence plays, this last evidence of a genuine work of God plays in. We do very much live in a negative world in the sense that being a Christian is looked upon dishonorably. It is looked upon negatively depending on what context you're in, depending perhaps even where you work, identifying as a Christian might put you at risk of losing some things. It's seen negatively, but this is where the mark is highlighted. This is where it shines brightest. Are we willing to put ourselves in positions and risking many things in our lives? For bearing the name of Jesus Christ. A genuine work of the Lord is marked by this evidence that his followers are marked by this dangerous and risky obedience. And so, when we consider the genuine work of the Lord, when we consider these evidences that a genuine work of the Lord endures, that his followers keep following that they're willing to be dishonored, and that they're willing to obey even at the cost of many things in their life. Right? Does this mark us? Are we pursuing these things? Do we want to be marked by these evidences? And let it be so. Let us be marked by these different evidences because we want what we do here, what we do as a church, what we do in ministry be a genuine undertaking of the Lord. Let us each individually, personally examine ourselves and ask ourselves, are we willing to be marked by these different evidences? And in this way, let us join in the work of Christ. Let us join His great endeavor to bring all glory to Himself. if you're not a part of this work, I hope that you will consider it. I hope that you will seriously consider being a part of this work. And As you've hopefully heard this morning, there's there's nothing glamorous about it. It is risky. It can be dangerous. But it is, but those who have joined this great work, the cause of Christ to bring glory to himself through the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, have considered it worthy. Because we're not after any rewards in this life. We're after the eternal rewards. We have considered that Jesus gave everything, put everything on the line for our sake so that we might be saved And so in return, we want to give our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. To show our gratitude. To show that living for Christ is worth it. And indeed it is. And though we may not be paid back in this life, the things that we are willing to put on the line, the things that we perhaps, that some of you perhaps have lost in bearing the name of Jesus Christ, the promise is the Lord will reward and return and multiply that which you have lost in this life for bearing the name of Jesus Christ. I highly doubt that Camaliel believed in Jesus even though he had this caution. But he was wise and from it we learn how can we tell a genuine work of God and a work of man. Let us pursue these evidences and let us be marked by these evidences so that we may increase in our assurance that Christ is with us. Let's pray. Lord, there is a reason why you tell all men that one must count the cost. That one should count the cost before following you. Because it is costly. It will require great sacrifices. Namely, it requires the sacrifice of one's life. But Lord, there is nothing greater that we can give our lives to. What can compare to this glorious undertaking? What can compare to following you? We can follow other men, we can follow career, we can follow our own plans, we can follow our own desires, we can follow the things of the world, but all those things will die away. There is nothing that we can guarantee to make sure that our plans come to fruition. Careers can come and go. So Lord, we want to give our lives to following you because it is worth it and nothing can compare to following you. And yes, at times it's marked with trials. Sometimes it's marked with suffering and even perhaps persecution. Lord, we do not have our sights set on earthly things. We have our sights set above on heavenly things on the eternal rewards that have already been secured in Christ Jesus for those who have given their lives to follow you. Lord, give us what we need. Give us the grace that we need, Lord, so that we may be increasingly marked by these evidences, so that we may have this assurance that you are with your church. Help us to live for you no matter what we go through in this life, no matter what your church goes through, help us to endure. Help us to continue to follow resembling our Savior Jesus Christ. Help us to endure to be willing to be dishonored for the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to not be so protective of our own image and personal reputation in the eyes of men so that we may be more bold in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And give us the boldness and the courage to be marked by a dangerous obedience. We trust you for these things. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Church, let's stand. In response of uh, response of today's word. Uh, let us be glad in the Lord, Amen. And let us rejoice in the work that He's doing in us. Um, and amongst all believers, all witnesses. Amen.
2: Let the glory of the Lord forever be our joy may redeem be the theme of our song. For by grace we have been saved, and by grace we shall proclaim to the corners of the earth that Christ is come. let sing. Let the nations be glad
1: Lord. Yes, Lord, you are worthy, worthy, worthy of our praise. God, I want to thank you for your faithfulness over all. God, you remain faithful when we cannot. So, Lord, I ask that you may continue to lead And equip your people. Equip your church, Lord. May we be confident, Lord, in your call and guidance to be faithful witnesses of the gospel. Lord, may we endure through all kinds of persecutions that we may find ourselves in. May we instead, Lord, boast in all those trials and temptations that may come our way and consider it glory unto you, Father. God, may we open our eyes and examine ourselves as we reflect on where we stand. And where we stand in before you and in the eyes of men. May we not cease In sharing the gospel father. As we heard today father we must. We must preach the gospel of Jesus. We must share the good news. May we obey. Lord willing at all costs call of the gospel. Lead your people, Father. Pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, word of God says, Now to him who is able, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Church, God bless you. You're dismissed. Amen.